Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. It's 30 with Murdy with your host, Sweeney Murdy. And welcome back, everybody, to another edition of 30 with Murdy. We're on a little book tour right now. Last time we were talking to Bob Clappish about his book, Inside the Empire. And right now, I turn my attention to my friend Tyler Kepner. You've read him in the New York Times. And his new book is called K, A History of Baseball in Ten Pitches. It's available now from Doubleday Books, anywhere you get books. And uh, first of all, Tyler, I want to ask you, listen, I told you this privately. I'll tell everybody else. I I really enjoyed reading the book uh, just from a fun perspective. You know, there are sometimes their books feel like homework. This did not. Um, and I'll get more into that in a minute. But the idea of doing basically a, a century plus worth of baseball history, the way you did it, how did that come? Um, well, thank you for one thing. Um, and I, I've always been fascinated by that generation of pitchers that we grew up watching basically um guys who started in the late six started in the 60s and ended in the 80s um you know i'm talking guys like steve carlton jim palmer nolan ryan phil micro don sutton all in all down the list um so i started thinking maybe i could do something just focused on them um but then as, as we as we sort of sculpted out the uh the idea i thought well why why limit it to to those guys you know if we're already looking at a big slice of baseball history anyway why not just go for it all you know you see the patches this year is at 150 years 150 is is just manageable enough i think to where you can still reach back um and and find some interesting stuff but not some stuff that's like so far from colonial days or or pre-revolutionary war days that people wouldn't be able to relate to it so um it was it was just manageable enough to get my arms around and to organize it around the pitches i thought would be fun because uh you know that's the game, right? I mean, right. these guys decide what to throw, and nothing happens until until they decide what they're going to throw and where and why and all that. And so I just thought to be able to talk to the masters about what they what they threw, how they learned it and applied it, basically what they do best in their mm-hmm. search for excellence. I thought I'd be able to you know get a lot of cool voices in there and people who would be happy to to engage me on that. Two things that struck me while I was reading it. You talk about cool voices. I read this book in your voice, and maybe it's just because we've known each other for so long, but I'm, I'm reading it, and I don't do that very often with books where right. I can hear the author's <laughs> voice reading it to me. And it's not an audio book. And you can literally hear it oh, when I did the audio book. Right. <laughs> Another plug. I like it. Um, but the other reason that I love reading is because I could tell, and you explained this at the end, how much you loved writing it. And so many people, so many times, people talk about when they're they're happy that it's over, but the process is painstaking. You actually seem to like the process of doing. it. I did, yeah. I mean, I think it's a, you know, we work for the New York Times. I don't kid myself. You work for the New York Times, like that itself may get people's attention and, and, and sell books. So I had agents who you know wanted to work with me over the years, and and the agent I went up with was David Black, and and he really understood that I for me to do this. 
and still keep my regular job and be a dad to four kids and a husband and all that, like the stuff that really mattered to me, I needed time. I needed a long time to do it and it, it couldn't be rushed. Um, and so to get three years to work on it was just perfect for, for my life and for me to enjoy this um, process and do it at my pace. Um, having that time allowed me to get certain guys who I missed in the first couple of years, but I got them in the third year of research. Mm-hmm. Um, Roy Halliday was one of those. Right. You know, those first couple of years in 15 and 16, he was, you know, not really involved in baseball. He was really hard to get. 17, he came back, and the Phillies remembered that I had asked about him over the years, and they, they let me, uh, you know, they, they, they arranged for me to talk to him. So um, strategically, it worked out that way, but mainly, like you say, I just enjoyed the process because, A, I love history. I love baseball history. Uh, I love digging through the files in Cooperstown. Um, and I just love talking baseball with guys, you know? And and it's not a, a um, you know, it wasn't, I wasn't engaging them on, I wasn't trying to ask them things that made them uncomfortable or whatever. Like, just tell, you know. Their craft. Their craft, what you did great. Some of them were really appreciated uh, being acknowledged and um, remembered. You know, like Greg Olson was like, wow, you know, you're writing, writing about the history of the curveball. Thanks for including me. You know, like I, I won a rookie of the year, but didn't, you know, didn't pitch, you know, wasn't a Hall of Famer. But like it was it was cool for him to be included. One of the things that I appreciated was that as you read through the book, you realize that the pitches connect the pitchers from one generation to the next. I mean, everybody's got their Don Drysdale to Greg Brady moment. You know, and yes. the, and that, that was a reference that you didn't make, which I was a little bit surprised by. <laughs> but um, everybody seems to have that, this guy taught me how to grip this pitch, or I learned it by watching this guy. And it connects so many great pitchers from one generation to the next. That had to have been fun to, to just learn the, the, the lineage of everything. Yeah, it really was, um, because... I knew from, you know, just from covering the beat for eight years with the Yankees and 12 years on beats overall, how how pitchers like to talk shop and how they're always kind of playing around with that baseball and and, and making it do interesting things. Um, But the lineage stuff was was a lot of fun. The the thing I like to point to is Johnny Padres threw a changeup to win game seven of the World Series for the Brooklyn Dodgers. He becomes a coach. He teaches it to Frank Viola. And through painstaking effort, Frank Viola masters that pitch and uses it to win Game 7 of the World Series for the Minnesota Twins, who had never won before, just like Brooklyn had never won before. Um, uh, Noah Syndergaard becomes a pupil of of Viola's in the minor leagues. It's not his number one pitch, but it's something he used in in his arsenal, and he won a World Series game for the... Mets in 2015 and along the way you had Pedro Martinez learning it from Guy Conti who was a Dodgers guy who learned it from Padres. Pedro helped the Red Sox break their streak and kids across the Dominican and everywhere inspired by Pedro to to throw change-ups like Kelvin Herrera who threw it for the Royals when they won. So you can trace this stuff all the way back. It's a lot of fun. Is Was the change-up your favorite pitch during this whole day? Was it another pitch that maybe of the, of the 10 that you described uh, in really great detail? Um, is there one that was your favorite to research and write about and talk about? Um, I, you know, I don't know that I really had a, a, a favorite. Um, maybe the knuckleball. I mean, mm-hmm. I, you know, I've written a lot about that just because it's so interesting. Maybe it's just because those guys were so um, easy to get a hold of and just have such naturally interesting stories because they're all kind of underdog stories. Yeah. And when you're telling stories, the underdog story is, is sort of a always a winner. Um, 
but they're all kind of underdog stories because nobody really, except for you know Phil Micro, who threw it as a kid, um, you know, planned to be a knuckleball pitcher. Um, it just they just fell into it through a lot of effort and baseball rejecting them in other ways. So um, that was fun to be able to get you know the Wilbur Woods and Charlie Huffs and Candiotti and Steve Sparks and I don't know so many guys. Um, so I might say the knuckleball and also honestly to be able to to practice knuckleballs with Jim Bouton in his backyard. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean I went up there for a separate story, but we talked. I've talked to Jim over the years about the knuckleball and we talked about it a little bit that day but just playing catch I wouldn't even plan that really it was just you know we had some time I had my glove in my car and you know we were talking knuckleball grips and to be able to throw it with a major league you know former major league pitcher who threw it and use a different grip than I ever tried before um, with three fingers that was a lot of fun so that was like an interactive chapter for me yeah there you go one of the things that I I kind of learned and appreciated was that there are not a lot of new pitches in baseball. You know, it's people trying to tinker with the same basic group of pitches over the course of decades and decades. I mean, you know, the splitter has been around forever, and that's probably like the newest pitch. It's been around for, for half a century uh, or more, really. Um, Bill Masaraski hit a cutter off of Ralph Terry, and I'm thinking that's the that I never knew. And that's the pitch where you'd say, okay, it took maybe on more prominence because of Mariano Rivera. But it's not a new pitch. Guys have been trying to do things like that, just find different ways to make the ball move away from the batter for 150 years. Right. They didn't always have names back then. You know, I don't know if when Ralph Terry let that ball go, he's thinking, here's my cutter, but he knows it's a fastball that moves that way. And now in 20, I know it's 2016 at the Old Timers Day at Yankee Stadium, you know, he, that's how he described it. Um, but I like I like talking to a, guy, a coach named Ace Adams who, yeah. who taught to – taught Cliff Lee in the minor leagues with the Expo system. And, of course, Cliff Lee for a long time had a, had a really good cutter um, with the Indians and, and, and the Phillies and Texas uh, mostly. Um, but this Ace Adams played it at uh, Michigan. And at Michigan he was coached by Red Fisher, who was throwing cutters in the 1919 World Series for the Cincinnati Reds. He actually lost. He's like, they were trying to lose, and I lost. They still beat me. But, um, you know, so he, and he was telling Ace all about what that World Series was like, and so I got into a little of that because I couldn't resist. But just, again, the idea that, you know, even back a century ago in the Black Sox World Series, they were throwing a fastball to, to get in someone's kitchen. You know, as Chili Davis told me, he's like, you know, they didn't have names for him back then. You were just, you had guys who would get in your kitchen. You know, Jerry Royce would get in your kitchen. Woody Fryman would get in your kitchen. Certain guys, would, Dave Dravecki, would throw curveballs that would cut on you. They didn't call him that, though. I've got a, the Ace Adams connection that I'm aware, about, aware of. I'll throw you a little bit of a trivia your way. He was actually the recruiting coordinator and pitching coach with Bill Freehand at Michigan when they were recruiting Derek Jeter. And oh, Jeter wow. ended up obviously uh, being drafted by the Yankees, signing with them. But uh, Ace told me a wonderful story about sitting down to lunch in Ann Arbor with the Jeter family and discussing the possibilities of them coming to Michigan. And the six-pick overall 1992 pretty much threw that all out the window. He's not going to Michigan. He's going to Cooperstown, <laughs> as scout Dick Roch said in the Yankees, uh, Yankees yeah. war room. The fan, the, in, in lore now. Uh, you made the slider, Chapter 1, and – you know, you and I both grew up watching Steve Carlton and marveling at him um, and, and kind of just turning us onto this world of, of baseball and what a pitcher can do. And you described that in, in your own version as well. Why was a slider chapter one? I actually intended for the fastball to be um, chapter one. The number one. The old number one, <laughs> yeah. you know. And, 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 uh, but my editor thought that it made more sense 
um, to make it this slider coming right out of the introduction where um, I talk about my I, I talk about sort of me and how you know why I love pitching so much and um, he said look it's your book it's Steve Carlton was your your favorite guy um, you know let's put the slider up front and it just flows better that way that was really all it was for the you know the flow of the chapters um, but no fastball I did intend to be number one I didn't want to I didn't I certainly was not going to make this book about myself it's not about me um, I'm but I had to put my I had to sort of introduce myself a little bit to the reader because I'm always very aware of what I'm not and I'm not a coach and I'm not a professional pitcher um, and I'm also not like a his, you know history professor so I didn't want to give people a, a sort of like they're reading homework like a historical tome like a textbook of just you know a, a, a chronological exploration of something and I didn't want to make it a how-to book because I'm not qualified to teach someone how to throw pitch and um, I didn't want to get it too bogged down in the weeds of, of numbers and spin axis and all this stuff like I just want to tell stories and we thought the slider stories worked best in that spot there was in that chapter there's actually a quote which jumped out at me as maybe something that every pitcher feels every good pitcher feels when he's on the mound, J.R. Richards' quote to you was, I felt like I was the baddest lion in the valley. And I, that just jumped out to me. Everybody who's ever thrown a pitch past a hitter must feel like that in some way, shape, or form. Wasn't that great? Yeah. I, I've always been fascinated by J.R. Richards um, just because he was his, – his career – ended before I really started following baseball yeah. but I would still get his baseball cards because right. people kept putting him in the set sort of hoping that he would make yeah. it back from the stroke um, in 1980 but he never did um, but to, to because you talk to enough people around baseball who faced him and they hold him in such reverence um, and I think part of it is because like Sandy Koufax he had a very brief prime and nobody really ever saw him him struggle at the end or fade mm-hmm. out mm-hmm. you know our last memory of sandy koufax is 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 winning a cy young and pitching in the world series and and our last memory of jr richard is starting the all-star game in july of 80 by the end of july of 80 he was done sadly with his strokes um and you know life life was tough for him i mean he ended up living under a bridge um, for a little bit before getting his life back in order um but there's there's a certain sort of sadness and, and romance to to a guy who had a brief career and we never really saw the the downside. It was just great until it was over. As we go through the 10 pitches, something that sticks out to me is that there are a lot of guys who have a, hmm, what if I did it this way story to it? What if I just held it this way? What if I did something different? And it goes back to what we're talking about, it just being passed on from one generation of pitchers to the other. But I found kind of humorous the, uh, you know, one of the what if I did it this way Randy Johnson actually demonstrated for you the the key that unlocked everything for him yeah yeah we were in a little little conference room in, in Arizona um, at the Dimeback Stadium and he gets up but he unfolds that six foot ten frame and you know Randy when he gets talking about something he gets really into it mm-hmm. like it was you know he was as a player even he'd be either sort of surly or he'd be awesome and he yeah. would just talk forever and so like this is one of the days he was very talkative and yeah he gets up and talks about how he was landing on the wrong place of the wrong part of his foot and he needed to get more directional to home plate um and how tom house uh saw him before tom house had gone to usc like randy had and tom was the pitching coach for the rangers um 
and he goes to Randy and says, hey, you want to go see Tex throw a bullpen, meaning Nolan Ryan? And Randy was like, of course. So they went down there, and then they sort of diagnosed what, what Randy was doing wrong with his foot. And it was for him, it was really a two-part thing. It was, it was cleaning up his mechanics finally so he could be uh, more on, on a straight direction to the plate. Um, and also his father died that, that, that offseason, and he said that that gave him the chip on his shoulder and sort of the rage, the channeled rage that he needed. So, um, you know, he pitched with a fury after that, and he also knew how his body should work. And from that point on, he became obviously one of the most dominant pitchers we've ever seen. K, a history of baseball and 10 pitches from Doubleday. One of the chapters is fastball. And the other nine pitches in the book are all about ones that move different ways uh, at different speeds. Velo is king is, is like the subheading and, and part of the, um, the chapter on the fastball. But the other nine pitches are all about movement and deception. And I, I, the Bill Madlock quote that you use I've heard before says, how do you hit a curveball? Well, it's don't miss the fastball. And I love the as much as we focus on velocity, and the pitchers today all focus on velocity, they're all trying to throw every pitch as hard as they can. What gets them here and gets them successful are the ones that move different ways. Right, and I use the the Velo as King subhead because it was Trevor Bauer said that, and and in, in the full quote he talks about how getting through the minors, Velo is King. They're not they're going to promote you if you throw harder. If you throw you know at a lower speed and get get guys out you're still not going to get promoted as much as the guy who maybe doesn't get guys out like you do but throws harder. They just they think that's going to play better. He said, once you get up here the big leagues, getting outs is all that matters. But to get noticed, um, you need to throw hard. And, and, and there's, you know, there's uh, maybe a loss of, of nuance a little bit in that. And, and also sort of some people are concerned that if the bell curve is sort of shifting and that – you know, you ha- the baseline for what you can throw is 95, let's say, that you're going to lose a lot of those sort of artists like, uh, you know, guys who, uh, let's say, Kyle Hendricks types or Jamie Moyer um, or, you know, a lot of guys. I remember Rick Reed covered him with the Mets, you know, guys who didn't throw, you know, much higher, harder than 90 but could still succeed. I do think, though, that all this modern data technology will help those guys because you can see – what a guy's spin rate is and you might see a guy who throws 90 like jay happ or something but he's able to get swings and misses up in the zone and now instead of just dismissing it at uh, 90 miles an hour that'll never play scouts will be able to see well but look at that spin rate that will play so hopefully some of this technology you know could help some of those softer throwers nearly every pitch that uh, that you write about includes a discussion on whether or not it leads to injury the myth versus the reality of it um, most of the guys who throw these pitches seem to lead you to a conclusion that it's more about overuse than actually throwing a particular pitch and spinning your arm a certain way. But it's all part of the discussion that everybody has to go through because you're talking about guys in your book whose career lasts only a couple of years versus guys whose career lasts to 20 or more years. Right, yeah. You know, unfortunately for the split finger fastball, a lot of the guys who threw it best in that era, late 80s, early 90s, didn't last very long. Um, you know, Bruce Suter and Mike Scott, Scott Gereltz, um, some of the other guys who uh, Roger Craig taught it to, they just they had kind of short primes and then they were done. And, and, and they will tell you that, you know, Jack McDowell, another one, um, they'll tell you that it was something else that, that, that caused their injuries, not the splitter itself. 
Um, but when a few prominent people, it's like I compare it to like a dog breed, like when a few prominent people get bitten by this one breed of dog and there's other breeds to choose from, a lot of people say, you know what, I'm not even going to risk it. I don't know if uh, that dog is inherently dangerous or if that dog, you know, brought along properly, it you know, can be just fine. They're like, I don't even want to bother when I can do, you know. If, the, if you think the splitter is risky, then maybe just go to a change-up or something that's going to go a little bit slower and maybe not have that same exact action. But it'll go the opposite way from an opposite hand to hitter and maybe accomplish the same thing. That's especially what you know kind of helped drive the screwball away because the screwball, people look at the inverted arm of Carl Hubble and just the violence that you need to, to um, not violence, but just the way you need to pronate. Um, and they say, you know what, I don't even want to risk it. We'll just throw it, teach the guy a change-up. Um, but, you know, in talking to Bobby Valentine about the splitter, I thought it was interesting because he, you know, he managed here in the 80s, and then he went to Japan in the 90s, and then he managed here again the late 90s, early 2000s. And by the time he came back, the splitter was basically gone, but all the people in Japan were still throwing it. And when the Japanese pitchers come over here, so many of them have it. And Bobby's like, yeah, because they didn't have the examples over here that we had that caused us to panic and stop throwing it. They just kept throwing it. The, the guys who throw a pitch and say, wow, that works – there's a, a long distance between them at that moment and what they can actually do with it and how they, how they get through a career with it. You know, and what I learned by this, and I, I, mean, I guess I kind of knew it just by covering baseball, but it stood, it stood out to me. The thought that stood out to me is the pitching isn't just throwing the pitch. It's throwing it over and over again to the point where you're trusting it, throwing it over and over some more, and even getting beaten with it but still being able to throw it with a game, a season, or a championship on the line and trusting that this is the one that's going to bring it home. Right. It's like, you know, when I talked to Dennis Eckersley about we were just chatting one day and we talked about the splitter and, and he didn't throw that pitch, but he said he tried so hard he had a cast made for his fingers. You know, he spread his fingers as wide as they could and he had a cast in the offseason. He would stick his, his – uh, his two fingers in there to you know try to break down the muscles or whatever and 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 give himself a, a wider split and he would try the bullpen but he's like you know what I never really threw it because when I'm out there in the ninth inning I've got to go to something that I can live with getting beat on you know that I, that, that I can trust and he's like in those spots particularly for a closer like I I can't go against my fastball and in his in his case a, a slider so he never really did throw it but that's how much he tried it was like the thing with in spring training when Rivera would always talk about trying to change yeah. up you know and it was kind of a joke but like he could try it sure and maybe even be able to have some success with it but when you get in that moment you know every pitcher will has, will always tell you if you don't throw this pitch with 100% conviction it's going to be a bad pitch and it's tough to have conviction in a pitch you just don't throw that much we both quote Mike Messina a lot right? just in everyday life and I know that I could tell how much he influenced even just not the parts he's quoted in but how much he influenced the the, the tone and the shape of your book uh, he, he has a description early in your book about all the variables to consider when throwing a pitch and it's actually quite fascinating yeah yeah he's uh, I mean he, you knew him one year before I did because I started in 02 and, and you started in 01 um his yeah, but nobody first, liked him that year, so it was fine. Right, right, right. <laughs> uh, but, like, I, I kind of had an inkling um, that he would be good if if uh, if he just stuck with him. And, like, Buster only had covered him, who pre- preceded me as the Yankees beat writer. He had covered him in Baltimore. And John Lowe, who I knew very well, he was with the Detroit Free Press, knew him as a visiting writer. And 
these guys would just tell me Messina is great. Just just hang with him, you know, get to know him, and he'll be great. And I learned more from him about pitching than than anybody else um, that I ever I ever covered. And yeah, to have a two hour lunch with him up in Montoursville, PA, where he's as happy as can be, um, that was a lot of fun. And you're right, he he talked about just so many factors that go into deciding which pitch to throw. He wasn't the kind of guy who just trusted the catcher um, because the catcher wasn't didn't have didn't know how every pitch felt for him that day. For him, it was just about a feel. Um, if I don't have this, I can go to that. If I don't have that, I can go to that. He had so many different plans to choose from. Um, and, uh, you know, it was always just how do I get through this game? And he had a lot of different ways to do it. One pitch he never got to throw, which I know kind of fascinates you in the history of it, the last pitch of the World Series. Yes. We've talked about this a lot. And it's evident, it's not explicitly said, but because I know you, how many times you refer to the last pitch of a World Series jumps out during the course of this book. Um, no Mitch Williams. Is that too soon? <laughs> too soon, right. Right. No, I didn't. I didn't get into that pitch. You know, the the, the you know the slider. Uh, the, what I think Joe Carter thought it was a slider, and Mitch thought it was a fast. Mitch was trying to throw a fastball or something. I, yeah, it didn't move like a fastball. Like, right. No. So I, I didn't. Uh, I didn't get into that. I could have, but um, yeah, it's my choice. So I, I. But you're right. It was. It was a good, good uh, observation. Good job by you, Sweet. Hey, um, to. Uh, to see how many times I do refer to the last pitch of, of the World Series or, or any game in particular, you know, of, of, a, of a big playoff game or a perfect game or something. I just feel like there's that's the, that's the final moment that baseball has that the other sports do not because the other sports, you have to run, you know, the clock expires. Mm-hmm. Baseball, you have to earn that last out. You have to finish it. Um, very rarely does another game another sport basketball football hockey end with an action play it's usually just dribbling out of clock baseball always ends in an action play it's 11 nothing in game seven in 1985 but brett saber still got to get the last out and events like flies to right and so we always have that moment what i what i i'm so afraid of is having a replay review (laughs) on the final play of the world series like oh we saw it last year with the yankees red sox Mm -hmm. series because you just want that last out and everybody jumping around and this finality to it and this amazing um like we do in the backyard right yeah like you know every every kid who was a phillies fan of that of our generation knew how to imitate Tug McGraw jumping off the mound after striking Willie Wilson. Mm-hmm. And I think this more recent generation, same thing with Brad Lidge. So, you know, going to his knees and, and you know, yelling up to the heavens and having Chooch come over and, and Ryan Howard tackle him. So, yeah, I love that moment, as you know, and um, I tried to sneak in as many of those last out references as I could. Your last chapter is The Cutter. And I, I think it's actually quite interesting because it covers two main people in particular one that you kind of adored the way you adored Steve Carlton, but got to do it as an adult in Roy Halladay and Mariano Rivera, who you covered for so many years up close. Um, listen, it's such a, a, a great tragedy that Roy Halladay isn't here anymore, particularly when he is going to be inducted into the Hall of Fame this year. And, uh, and that tragedy is going to stick out to all of us. Uh, but your ability to speak with him about his craft and about his pitch, what was that like? Yeah, I mean, in in hindsight, you know, in hindsight, I'm very very lucky to have had that time with him, um, and that I can bring his voice, uh, you know, to life here for, for the readers because he he had a lot of really smart ideas about pitching. Um, 
I you could tell that when he would when he played because he was just so serious all the time. But when he did sit down for an interview or even in a post game setting, he was very cerebral and reflective and and interesting um, to talk with. So you know, just just being able to ask him anything I wanted that afternoon, um, what it, it it meant a lot to me then because as you know, like you said, I adored him and I I, I adored watching him pitch because you know nobody made those great Yankee lineups look as take as feeble swings as as he did it it seemed like they could never figure out if until it was too late which way that pitch was going to move it would go out on the end of their bats or in on their handle and it was weak contact or swings and misses or you know pop-ups and broken bats and stuff Um, and nobody else did that to the Yankees and then when he went to the Phillies for two years he was you know at, at the best pitcher in baseball again so you know, just to hear him tell me about going up to Rivera at the All-Star game yeah. in the Bronx in 08 and saying something's a little off with my cutter, um, What? how do you hold it? And then seeing that, you know, Rivera held it with a thumb underneath as opposed to the thumb on the side like Halliday did, um, that was just so cool. And, and how Halliday, Halliday traced his fingers on the baseball and kept that ball in his locker um, for the rest of his career, and whenever he got off kilter with it, he'd go back to that Rivera baseball with a Rivera grip and, and, and get back online. And Mariano Rivera, of course, had so such great success, which everybody says he threw one pitch, he threw one pitch, which isn't exactly true, but I found, I found Wade Davis's observation really uh, unique because like he basically says Mariano wasn't throwing the same cutter that the rest of us throw. Mm-hmm. He was throwing... A, a different pitch because of how hard he threw it and how late it broke and it's it's just different basically than the cutter everybody else knows it was it was it wasn't mastering one pitch it was basically throwing a different pitch yeah it's they would say about Bruce Suter's uh, splitter like you know he could throw the split finger fastball but he just did it differently it, the way it squirted out of his hands the way it the, the action that it took on the way to the plate um, yeah Rivera's was a, you know a one of a kind. Um, kind of, of of cutter there um, for all those reasons that, that, that Wade Davis said. Um, you know, Rivera was interesting because he, he had a career that was, you know, a lot of guys throw the cutter, but nobody threw it like Rivera. A lot of guys have, you know, a, a similar save percentage as Rivera, but what made him so great was the longevity and the how he took it to another plateau in the postseason which was just most guys over time their postseason stats will be just about exactly what their regular season stats are even the guys we think of who were always clutch and who always came through Andy Pettit Derek Jeter Bernie all those guys you look at their stats they're pretty much the same Mickey Mantle even but like you know, Mariano was a 099 or 090 something ERA in the world in, in the postseason. He was just different. Bumgarner has been different. Uh, Gibson, Schilling, you know, it's a very small, maybe even El Duque, like a very small group um, who performed much better in the postseason than they did in the regular season. Um, and that was that was Rivera. And you talk about the cutter. I I, I put, made sure to get the story in here because I remember reporting it in 2001 um, in conjunction with Buster, who was doing the Yankees then. I was doing the Mets about the last out of Game Four of the Subway Series, where Matt Franco, who had gotten a big hit off Rivera the year before, yeah. was sent up to pinch hit, and with two outs in the ninth, and he st- stood way off the plate. He's a left-handed hitter, and Posada looked at Rivera, and they didn't even have to. They, really say anything they just sort of like you see this like you see what he's doing here and so Posada just set up on the outside corner and Rivera 
beat Franco with four-seam fastball. And Franco took it for strike three and the only at-bat he ever had. And I asked him the next spring why, and he's like, because I can't hit that pitch. I'm giving up that pitch to try to get to the cutter if he throws me the cutter. My best hope to get to that pitch way out there is for the umpire to call it a ball because I'm not going to do anything with it because I'm, pre- I'm protecting against the cutter. And Rivera was smart enough to, to execute. The, uh, the book is called K, A History of Baseball in Ten Pitches from Doubleday by Tyler Kepner. It took three years to put this one together. Um, a Ken Burns-like pace. So what's next uh, on, your, uh, on your docket? Do you have something else, some other, some other passion project that you're looking to write besides where we read you every day in the New York Times? Yeah, I am definitely hoping to do another book with Doubleday. Um, you know, we don't have anything signed or whatever yet, but I do have another. I'm looking forward to going up to the Hall of Fame library again this summer. Um, I got a, a talk up there on July 17th, and that's right before the, uh, the induction weekend. So I'll just spend a day or so up there that week in the library and just digging in. But it will be another another topic within baseball history that, that, that I can have a few years to, to sing my teeth into and, and, and something that, you know, is, is – very personal to me as well so um i guess i can't really say it until you sign a contract okay. i don't know but like right. but i'm definitely thinking of something that's something else along these lines i can't wait listen i, I told you this again i, I told you this at the top I told you this privately i tell everybody else this is just a fun baseball book to read uh it's a history book that just you want to keep going the idea roy halliday uh mentioned in uh, i can't remember if it was his perfect game or if it was the no hitter that he threw in the playoffs uh, the idea that you build your craft to this and it's going along as well as it's ever going to go and then all of a sudden it's just over like you want it to keep going and that's kind of what I felt reading this book like I wanted it to keep going and that's probably the highest compliment I can give you thank you for writing it thank you for talking to me about it well thanks a lot for for saying all that it means a lot and uh yeah I use that quote um in the last photo we have there um in the book is, is of Halliday you know, before the last pitch of the no hitter. And I, I used that quote as the cut line um, for the, you know, for that picture, because I thought it was kind of point, some sort of poignance to it um, because obviously because of how it all ended for him, but just that idea that, you know, you, you get to something, end of something great and you just want it to keep going. Mm-hmm. You know, I thought, um, again, it was really, it ended up being a real privilege to talk to him and, and um, get him, his voice in there, but everybody, I mean, everybody's voice in there. I feel, I, I have so much respect, admiration for these pitchers and what they do. Um, and just to, to, to tell their story and to maybe know that you you know you told it right is, uh, is very gratifying. So thanks. And, uh, and I'll tell you, one of my, maybe my other favorite line was when you tell the Sparky Lyle story and weave it into Paul McCartney. Uh, it was such an easy game to play. Yes. I like it. I had to get some of that in there, of course. K, A History of Baseball in 10 Pitches by Tyler Kepner at Doubleday, anywhere books are sold. You can follow Tyler reading the New York Times and at Tyler Kepner on Twitter. Thank you, everybody, for listening. More 30 with Murdy coming up down the road. Appreciate you uh, tuning in and listening this time. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic and conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. 
Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. 